morning, everybody. It's good to see you all. If I haven't met you, my name is Matt. I serve as one of the pastors here. If you haven't grabbed a Bible or uh, turned there on your device and opened up to Psalm 45, we're going to be camping there this morning. Uh, And like John said as he was praying, there's some interesting passage parts for us to look at today. So go ahead and open to that so we can work through that together. And while you do that, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, we come to your word this morning believing that in this word is the good news. In your word, we are pointed to the one about whom that news is about, namely the Lord Jesus. And Lord, we ask that by the power of your spirit, as we open your word this morning, that you would cause us to understand it well. Lord, we pray that your spirit would work on our hearts and help us to become the people that you desire us to be. Please glorify yourself in this time, Lord. pray all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, coming up this fall, uh, Holly and I are going to be celebrating our uh, three-year anniversary. And we're super excited about that. And as we think back uh, on that season of life leading up to us getting married, some of you knew us just prior to that wedding, a little bit over three years ago. And just knowing that some of you walked through with us through that journey and were able to be there and support us through all this, especially as we started in uh, on this revitalization at Elmwood. It is uh, really a pleasure and I'm really thankful for that. And and as we're we're looking forward to celebrating three years, uh, one of the things I kind of wanted to share with you was just a little bit of of observations as far as uh, a couple of the things that I've learned over uh, these years so far. Uh, in marriage. So I'm going to break it down into two things. The first thing that I've learned so far is that I got the better end of the deal in this. So I definitely was the one that married up. And uh, if, if our marriage is going to thrive, then it's, it's best that I remember that at all times and in all seasons. <laughs> the, uh, the second thing and, and the more serious thing that I've learned over years of marriage is this, that I am far more foolish and sinful than, than I could possibly have imagined. You see, what they don't tell you when you're kind of diving into uh, marriage, and it, whether you're, when you're dating somebody or in the, you know, the premarital counseling stuff or, or any of that stuff going on, they, they don't tell you that marriage and your spouse specifically becomes kind of a, a highlighter for uh, your life in many ways. It, it, marriage is, in some way, the Holy Spirit's highlighter, if you would put it that way. And, and what happens is you have all these joys that you come into marriage with and all of these things that you've started to experiencing and, and you get to share those joys with another person and it makes them all that more vibrant and wonderful. But what God also lovingly does in a marriage kind of uh, context is he takes your spouse And he begins to highlight the areas where there's selfishness, where there's unresolved hurts, where there's uh, explicit rebellion against him in your life, and just so much more. And I also don't think that this is unique only to the context of marriage. I think this happens in any intimate, real, authentic relationship, whether that be uh, with a family member or a a friend or a boss or, or whoever it is. It just so happens that marriage tends to be a crucible that the Holy Spirit uses. But what we find is that in God's good grace, that, that close relationships of any kind are often very, um, shall we use the word, uh, illuminating. 
right, shines light on us. We find that real community presents us kind of with this tension where it makes the, the sweetest moments even sweeter. But it also challenges us in, in many ways in, in our godliness. And as hard as that is, it's, it's good and it's right. It's the, it's the appropriate thing where God uses our relationships in order to take us from where we're at to where he desires us to be as he shapes us into the image of Jesus. And as we look at Psalm 45 this morning, a, a challenging psalm at that, there's this tension that we see in the text where, where the people that it's talking about are, are working through who they are versus who God is calling them to be. Because we're meeting two people in a very intimate relational moment. It's a, a bride and a groom on their wedding day. And from the way that this text talks about the groom specifically, he is probably uh, either going to be king or already a king from the line of David. And if you don't know who David is, David is one of the, the most profound leaders in the history of Israel with his dynasty kind of being a, a focal point in who they are and in their identity. So we're not just reading any psalm, but this is most likely a song that was written by the psalmist. That, that he was going to sing for this groom king. And what we're going to have to navigate this morning as we look at this is, is this tension in the text that exists. Because the psalmist doesn't just celebrate the bride and the groom, but he exhorts them to a certain way of living. He exhorts them to be who they've always been called to be. He exhorts them to a life that God is calling them into. And the question that we are left with is this. Will these two people... This bride and this groom, will they actually live into who God has called them to be? So let's explore that a little bit as we look at first the bride and the groom. The, the psalm is actually broken up into essentially two parts. The first half talking about the, the groom and then the second part talking about the bride. So in verses uh, 1 through 9, we're going to look at what I've called the victorious groom king. So look at that with me. I'm going to read that again, starting in verse 1. It says, My heart is stirred by a noble theme. This is the psalmist who wrote the song talking. As I recite my verses for the king, my tongue is a pen of a skillful writer. You are the most excellent of men, and your lips have been anointed with grace since God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on its side, you, you mighty one. Clothe yourself with splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride forth victoriously in the cause of truth, humility, and justice. Let your right hand achieve awesome deeds. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Let the nations fall beneath your feet. Your throne, O God, will, be, uh, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. All your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From palaces adorned with ivory, the music of the strings makes you glad. Daughters of kings are among your honored women. At your right hand is the royal bride in gold of Ophir. So let's stop there. So as we kind of launch into this this morning, the psalmist uses really, really elo eloquent language. He's equating what he's saying with, with the pen of a skillful writer, of a scribe, one of the most notorious and respected professions in his, in his day. So he's talking about what I'm about to say is, is profound. What I'm about to say to you needs to be remembered. And what's interesting as he starts to now talk about the king, it's amazing about the way that the king is described. Look with me at verse 3. Gird your sword on its side, you mighty one. And then in verse 4, in your majesty ride forth victoriously. So he's exhorting the king to be this kind of mighty warrior, 
conquering the nations around him on God's behalf. And if you lived in the ancient world, this would totally make sense for you because what the king was was kind of the one who partnered with the God in order to uphold order for the nation. So as we're reading from this king, from the line of David, he's partnering with Yahweh, the God of Israel, in order to make sure the covenant is maintained. And one of the ways that he would maintain order is through military victory. And so you have this king who is the groom coming into his wedding day and you want to encourage him. So what are you going to do? You're going to start by talking about his military prowess. But what's so beautiful about the way that the king's military prowess and the way that he rules is described is that he's really set apart here from the kings around him in some really unique ways. Namely, that instead of kind of leveraging this divine mandate that he is, the God, he is God's representative, instead of using that to, to bully his people in order to build up his ego, it says that he is called to rule justly and humbly and truthfully. That's the second part of verse four, in the cause of truth, humility, and justice. See, Israel's king is coming on the backdrop of the law that talks about that he's not supposed to be like other kings. He is supposed to be, as, as I've heard it put before, first and foremost, he's supposed to be a Bible nerd. If you look at Deuteronomy 17, you actually see this prescribed in the law. This is a description from Deuteronomy 17 for what Israel is supposed to look for in their king and what this groom is supposed to live up to. Listen as I read this. It says, And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, this is the king, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and the statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel." This is the expectation for this new groom as he's stepping into office. It says that he's supposed to write his own copy. He's supposed to handwrite his own copy of the law and regularly read it and regularly meditate on it. And in so doing, God will use that to shape him into the specific type of king that he is called to be. The type of king who ultimately is in submission to Yahweh, the true king. So as we think about the king in this text and and the exhortation to rule well, he's being essentially encouraged to be this example of godliness for his people, not this belligerent warlord as, as many of the kings of the ancient world are recorded to have been. But what also might catch your attention as you look at the text was verses six and seven. Verses six and seven, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. The scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. So this is a challenging passage. And as we're thinking about this in context, it it actually might make you a little bit uncomfortable because this text, when we're reading it, is clearly about the groom king here. So what is going on where it appears in verse 6 that the psalmist is calling this human groom God. What do we do with that? Because we can't avoid it, and that, it's, a, it's a good question. How do we sort through that? What is, what is the point of the text? And, and unfortunately, I don't have a, a cut-and-dry, comfortable answer for you this morning, except to say this, that it appears that the king is being called God because he is first and foremost called to be God's representative among the people. 
We have no evidence that Israel ever worshipped their king as a god, as many of the other nations did, like in Egypt or in, in Mesopotamia. But, but what we do see consistent with how Israel thought, like the ancient world, is that there was a very close connection between the deity that they worshipped and the king who was representing that deity. So what we're seeing is that that relationship is being highlighted, that this king is God's main representative. And so if you're addressing the king, you're addressing the one who is coming as an ambassador of God. But what we also have to remember is that the king of Israel does not just sit on any throne. If we look at 1 Chronicles 28, for example, it says that uh, the king sits on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. So as this new groom is sitting down on his throne, he's not just sitting in his own power, he's sitting in the power and the authority that God has given him. But that doesn't really relieve all the tensions. And we're kind of left in this weird spot where, where we have the king of Israel being called God and yet serving God. Are, are you tracking with that? So he's called God and yet he's serving God. And we honestly just have to sit with that. And we have to accept that in the text for the time being. But as we step back kind of from the, the theological part of this, I, I just want to recognize what a wonderful moment this is for God's people. This is a, a celebration for them. This is, in many ways, a, a, a moment where they are seeing the promises of God coming true right before their eyes. Because God had made David a promise. He made him a promise in 2 Samuel where he said, I am going to make you into a king who has a throne, meaning a dynasty, that never ends. And year after year, as a king from the line of David is sitting on this throne of the kingdom of God, every time there is a new king from the line of David who takes the throne, they are quite literally seeing God's promises come to fruition. And they are celebrating that here. Not to mention what a moment of just political unity for these people where they are all coming together. They don't have different parties vying for power. They have one king from one line and he is coming in the order of God's faithfulness and they are celebrating that together. This is a wonderful moment for God's people. But let's, let's turn our attention now from the groom to the bride. This is verses 10 through 15. It says, listen, daughter, And pay careful attention. Forget your people and your father's house. Let the king be enthralled by your beauty. Honor him, for he is your Lord. The city of Tyre will come with a gift. People of wealth will seek your favor. All glorious is the princess within her chamber. Her gown is interwoven with gold in embroidered garments. She is led to the king. Her virgin companions follow her. Those brought to be with her. Led in with joy and gladness, they enter the palace of the king. So I've called this the the glorious bride of the king here as we think about her. And as we move towards the the latter half of this song, there is definitely a focus shift that goes on here where we start to think about the beauty and the splendor of this woman who is going to be the king's wife. It says that the city of Tyre is bringing her gifts. And Tyre was a a, a Phoenician city that was kind of the, the epitome of wealth in their day. And so you're having the richest nation bringing her stuff. It's not quite a, uh, an exact comparison, but if we're going to use kind of a modern day example, if you can imagine the richest foreign nation that you can conceive of bringing the, the first lady gifts to honor her as her husband is stepping into the office of the presidency. This is talking about this bride's international renown. 
And as we think about the bride, there's two observations that I want us to make about her. And they're, they're kind of tied together. The first observation of her is this, that she is called to make a clear transfer of allegiance as, as she steps into this marriage. This is where it says, listen, daughter, and pay careful attention. Forget your people and your father's house. Let the king be enthralled in your beauty. There's this transfer of allegiance going on. And it's not clear whether this uh, marriage is kind of the, the result of the seeking of political unity. In the ancient world, sometimes you would, you would make an arranged marriage in order to make a political ally. So this could be uh, this Davidic king trying to, to make an ally of another nation by marrying their princess to be his wife. But, but clearly, this wife is being told to, to break with her old family and to form a new one with this king. And as I say that, I expect some of us kind of draw back at that, kind of feel a little weird about that expectation that's being put on there. It might seem to you maybe unreasonable. It might seem to you a little bit inconsiderate, especially when the text uses language like this, forget your people and your father's household. So I want us to deal with this because we need to own it. We can't work around this. And, and, and here's what I would submit to us, that not only would this not be uncommon, in the ancient world. This was pretty normal, this, this making alliances and breaking with one family and joining another. But, but more than that, there's another level where what's being expressed in this text is actually a thoroughly biblical concept being played out in a unique way. If we think back to Genesis chapter 2, where Adam and Eve meet one another, they come together as, as husband and wife for the first time, the, the first husband and wife. This is what the text says in explaining it. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Some of us know this principle as, as leaving and cleaving, where you're leaving your, your birth family and you're cleaving to this new family of your spouse. And what I would argue is that we are seeing this idea of leaving and cleaving played out in a, a royal context and under specific circumstances. And know with me that the bride is not the only one whose relational uh, dynamics are changing here. If you look to verse 16, the, the new groom, as he's stepping into king, he is called not only to be the son, but now the father of the continuation of this dynasty. Now, in the patriarchal culture of their day, there is certainly much more change going on for her than there is for him, but there are certainly dynamics that are changing for both of them. So the first observation is there's a clear transfer of allegiance for the bride, but here is the best part about the bride that I want us to see. And it's tied to this transfer of allegiance. It's this. This transfer of allegiance, it brings benefits to her simply by association. Let me say that again. The transfer of allegiance of this bride to her new family brings benefits simply by association. In other words, what's going on is because of who the king is, her honor becomes his honor or his honor becomes her honor, excuse me. The text says that people will seek her favor, that, that those who are, have wealth will come to her. They will seek to bring her gifts. There is a direct benefit to her where she is celebrated and recognized in, in a unique and in a profound way as she is ushered into the king's presence to be his wife, and not because of anything that she has done except for accepting the marriage arrangement here or, or quite possibly her parents accepted it on her behalf, but simply because of who the king is. And I want us to hold on to that. 
And step back for a moment, because as we think about this wedding that's taking place in the text, there's definitely a level where it's culturally foreign to us. They go about things in ways that we don't go about them, ways that we may not be able to identify with. But, but I would say that one thing that we can identify with as we look at this text is that it seems almost too good to be true. Like, this is an amazing moment for God's people. It's, it's almost fairy tale like as we think about this. And there's definitely poetic language, you know, that's being leveraged here to exalt the bride and the groom. You don't want to talk poorly of the bride and the groom, especially when the groom is the king on their wedding day, right? We do this in our culture. We talk well of the bride and the groom when they get married, even if they're being a, you know, bridezilla or a groomzilla, as we call them in, in that context. We want to talk well of them. But there is a reality to be dealt with in the history of Israel here, a reality where we have to think about this wedding and this marriage and, and the impact that it had on God's people. Because as we started looking at the text, we, we considered this question, whether this couple, and specifically I want us to point out whether this king would live into the glory that's described in this text. In other words, as we look back on this wedding, let's ask the question, did this king live into all of the expectations for God's call on his life? And as we think about this, I would say that the answer is most certainly no. Most certainly no. Now, we don't know which king from the line of David this is talking about here, and some of them were better than others. But what I want to suggest is that this exalted language that's being used for the groom king is too good for any king that Israel ever had or would have in this context or would have in the near future here. It's almost like the, the reality of the situation does not, the, does not fit in the context of what's being talked about. In other words, with what we know about Israel's history, this would have described the hopes that they would have had for their king, but hopes that never actually came to fulfillment among God's people. In fact, when we think about the, the story of David and, and his dynasty, it's actually a really, really tragic story where David has a, a, a severe sin, a severe transgression. And he has a son named Solomon who also sins against Yahweh. And as a result of that sin, Israel actually has a schism. They break into civil war. They split into two nations. And that doesn't destroy the dynasty. But after that, all of the kings who are on the throne are, are kind of a mixed bag. And none of them are certainly perfect. And eventually this, this sin persists among them and this results in what we call the exile where foreign nations actually came in and took God's people away and with that it appeared as if this line of David had been destroyed. So the people of Israel are having to reckon with, okay, here's what our hopes are in this psalm for the king. But we've sinned against God and he has taken us away to a foreign nation as a result of our sin and his judgment. So what are we to think of our hopes here? And at the same time, they're over in exile. You have prophets like Isaiah over here who are squawking about this idea in some sense that God is going to do something more with Israel, that he still has something left for his people, that he's going to bring about a new David, as he called him, even though David is long since dead, some sort of anointed king that God's people begin to call their Messiah, the, the king who's going to rule God's people rightly, but they're still looking for him. And if we have to sum up the Old Testament, when we get to the end of the story, we see that it falls severely short of the hopes that Psalm 45 had for their king. So the Old Testament history ends, and God's people are still waiting. They're still waiting for more to come that God had promised them. They're still looking for a king who will fit the silhouette that the psalm gives us.
and what we see as Jesus enters the story hundreds of years later is that God had a more creative way of filling the silhouette of the king that God's people had been waiting for than anyone would have imagined because he chose to take on flesh, being born into the line of David, to be the king that they had been looking for. In fact, the book of Hebrews picks up on this in chapter one, and it ascribes to Jesus, the son of God, God incarnate, as, as the, the king who is the fullest expression of what the psalm was hoping to see play out. But Jesus was a different type of king than his people had expected. He didn't come first to conquer the nations, although the promise is that one day he will do that and he will judge rightly. But it appears that his first order of business was to deal with the thing that was most broken in our world, and that's us. What we find is that the the main problem is that we had willingly rejected God. And as we sought to fix that and and earn our keep and and make a name for ourselves apart from the way that God desired us to live, we introduced all kinds of brokenness and more sin into our world. The psalm talks about the king piercing the hearts of his enemies. And the convicting truth of scripture is that while we like to think of ourselves as friends of God, is that apart from Christ, we are the enemies of God. And the good news of the gospel is that instead of the king piercing us, he chose to be pierced on our behalf on a cross. So instead of us being rightly punished for the ways that we have rejected our creator, the Bible says that Christ dies in our place. And that he rises three days later demonstrating that not even the enemy of death could conquer him. That he is the conquering king. So instead of punishment, what we as his people wait for is his glorious return. Where he takes us to himself like a king groom takes his new bride who he has made new. Who is honored not because of anything in them but simply because of who he is. What we find as we think about this text and its fulfillment is in Christ is this, is that we see that Christ is the victorious groom king who invites the bride to share in his honor and to receive eternal life. So if you're here this morning and you've you've never placed your faith in Jesus, the Bible invites us to, to trust in him for who he is, for what he's done. This is not some loose association with him because of our our upbringing or because of some experience, but completely giving over our lives to him. Like the bride in our psalm this morning, we're called to give our allegiance to this new King Jesus. And in return, we are promised to be honored and to reign with him when he returns. We're promised forgiveness of our sins. We're promised that God comes to dwell with us when we trust in Christ through the Holy Spirit as he changes our hearts and makes us into the people who he desires us to be. And we're promised that one day that this God who conquered death in Christ whose love goes beyond the grave, one day he will raise our bodies to new life where we will dwell with him forever. It says that he will be our God and we will be his people in a place where there is no more sin, where there is no more brokenness. So if you're here this morning and you recognize your need for Christ, as, as all of us have, maybe this is the first time you've ever heard the gospel before. Maybe you've been in church for years and this is the first time you feel God working on your heart. I wanna invite you to truly believe the good news about Jesus today. I wanna encourage you to trust in him and to begin this journey with us of following him. You can place your faith 
in him right now in the seat where you're in and join us as we take communion in a few moments where we remember the sacrifice that Christ gave on our behalf in order to make us new and to reconcile us to God, our maker. And if you're here and you are a Jesus follower, I wanna bring your attention back to kind of what I was talking about earlier, where we see that something going on in the text where there's the celebration of who these people are and yet there's the exhortation to a, a, a certain life that God is calling them into. And this is something we experience in every relationship, the, the joy of, of experiencing the, the sweet moments together, and yet the challenge where those relationships call us into something greater. And, and, and if that's true of our human relationships, my question is how much more should that be true of our relationship with Jesus? And so for those of you who are Jesus followers, here's, here's my two encouragements to you this morning. To joyfully lean into the Holy Spirit's conviction. One of the weird things that happens as we we grow closer to Christ is that we see how holy and good and amazing and wonderful and powerful he is. And at the same time, we start to see how unholy and broken and sinful we, we are. And as that happens, the Spirit tends to work in our hearts to convict us of our, of our sin and of our foolishness. And it's easy for us in those times to, to harden our hearts to the Spirit's work, to turn away from what the Spirit is doing in us. But I want to encourage you in, in the moments where, where we're thinking about what is the Spirit doing? What does he want to do in us? How, where is he taking you? Who does he want to make you into? I want to encourage you to lean into the Holy Spirit's conviction. And second is this, joyfully rest in his finished work. Friends, I want you to take heart in the fact that everything this psalm hopes for, a a splendid, wonderful, majestic, strong spouse who cares for his people, the humble, just, truthful leader, and the victorious king, they all find their fullest expression in Jesus, the one who our hearts were ultimately made for. You see, Christ offers us all of the benefits of the best of our relationships and more with none of the drawbacks. He always has our best interests in mind. He never abandons us. He always challenges us in all of the right ways and he is always faithful to us and there is nothing left for us to do apart from recognizing that he has already done it all because church, he has not only been faithful to you, he has been faithful for you. He has lived the life that you could never live in your place and he has rose again after conquering death so that we could rest in him today, so that we could turn from our sin and so that we could joyfully rest in him and then follow in obedience in the power of his spirit. So as we think about that good news this morning, I just wanna invite you to, to dwell on the good news of the gospel and what Christ has done for us and what the spirit might be doing in you even during this time. We're gonna take a moment of silent reflection and then we'll have a prayer of confession together. Merciful God, we confess that we've sinned against you in thought and in word and in deed by the things that we've done and the things that we've left undone. We confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart, our our whole mind and all of our strength and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We see who you are, Lord Jesus. And Lord, as we, we gaze upon you, we see our own brokenness and our own sin. 
how far we are from the people that you desire us to be. And yet, Lord, you have made us a promise that the work that you have begun in us by your spirit, you will bring to completion on the day that Christ returns. So, Lord, help us to hold to that truth. Help us to constantly repent of our sin and and turn back to you, the one who is wonderful and good, the, the groom king who has conquered death on our behalf so that you could take us, your bride, to yourself. Lord, in your mercy, would you forgive what we have been? Would you help us amend what we are and direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways all to the glory of your name and all of God's people said, amen.